0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Hope you have a copy of God's Word. Go ahead and make your way to First Thessalonians. That's where we've been the last few weeks, and that's where we're going to continue to be over the, actually, a couple months ahead. If you are a visitor with us this morning, and I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, my name is Ryan. I have the privilege of serving as one of our pastors here at the church, and we're just grateful that you're here in the house with us. Or if you're tuning online for the first time, thank you for joining us this morning. And to the church family, it just continues to be thing after thing that God is blessing us with that I just want to celebrate with you. Uh, This last week was the highest attendance we've had in our small groups um, that we can see in history. So praise God. And I just want to thank you guys for y'all's faithfulness to get into small groups. And let me just encourage you to continue with that. I know that some small groups were not small, they're more like large groups um, this week, and so we're just kind of going through different growing pains as a church, which are good things, but uh, the greatest enemy of a deep community is idealism, where we think that everything's going to be perfect, and everything's going to line up perfectly, uh, how we do child care, and how we interact with one another, and you want to come in and meet your best friend on the first week, and you just right right away, you're jumping into doing vacations together as friends, like, that might not be how things work, and it normally doesn't work that way. I mean, if you think about some of your deepest friends that you have, it's gone through time and ups and downs. And so let me just uh, encourage you, for those that have taken the step to join small group, just to be consistent in that. And for those of you that haven't taken that step yet, there's still time. We just started, and uh, what we do on Sunday mornings with First Thessalonians is what most of our small groups are walking through, where we just get to talk about that and apply it to our lives. So just encourage you to hop on our website and find those small groups. And just another thing that I'm excited about is next Sunday starts our first Sunday of our week-long Missions Focus week. So we'll take two Sundays, Sunday to Sunday, and we'll highlight what God is doing from neighborhoods to nations through you guys as a church, and then how God is encouraging us to continue to live on mission for Him. So that starts next Sunday. You don't want to miss those two weeks excited about what God is going to do in and through us. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're actually just going to read a few verses that are packed full of just Great truth from the Lord. So we'll be in verse 8, and we'll go through verse 10. This is what the word of the Lord says. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we pray today that you would shape our thoughts and our affections by your word. Help us to love your word and Through the power of your spirit, Lord, help us to live it out. Help us to be doers of your word. Forgive us when we wander from your commandments. And Lord, I ask in your tender mercies that you would help us to turn towards you, the true and the living God. And let me just invite you, if you'd be so bold, just to pray to God today and ask him that he would speak to you through his word today. Just pray that God would speak to you today. And then take a moment just to pray for someone else that you know needs to know the love and the comfort and the forgiveness of Jesus. Would you just pray for them now? Uh, Would you pray for me as well as we look at God's word that I would speak it clearly? Pray for someone else and pray for me. Jesus asked today that you would sustain the one who is weary. And Lord, that you would also save the one who's wondering through your power and your grace and your mercy. We pray today. Amen. All right, verse 8 kind of helps us to look back and look forward a little bit in this, this passage. But we see in verse 8 what happens is Paul, remember, he's gone and he shared the gospel in Thessalonica. And the people believed, they believed in the truth that Jesus Christ could save them from their sins. They believed in the truth that Jesus was risen from the dead. And so now we see that faith, that faith that they have in God, now sounding forth, verse 8 says. It's sounding forth, it's going forth from neighborhoods to nations. It says in verse 8 that it goes from Macedonia to Achaia. People are talking about what's happened in Thessalonica. The gospel in the town is what's going on in Thessalonica. We talked about in Acts 17 as it talks about this, that it literally, people started to describe these people as people who turned the world upside down. They turned the world upside down. That literally through their faith and their belief and their action, they changed the world. That's what's going on in this moment. And it says it's from Macedonia to Achaia. That's all of Greece. That's northern Greece and southern Greece. But it doesn't stop there in their city, in their home, and it says in verse eight, but it's gone forth everywhere. So this is what's happening in verse eight, if it hasn't been clear as you read it. Paul is going to share the gospel in other towns and cities and other places, and they're like, Paul, have you heard what happened in Thessalonica? Paul's like, yeah, I was there. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, this is amazing what's happened in Thessalonica. He's like, trust me, I know I was there. Now here's the thing, it's traveling by people going from city to city, it's traveling by word of mouth, it's sounding forth. What are they talking about? What is it that's caught people's attention? What is it that people are like, man, have you heard? Have you heard about this? Because we only talk about things that really matter. I mean, really, that's the things that we want to hear about, we want to talk about. It's got to be something important. What tells us in verse 9 what they're talking about? It says that we have heard that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is what they're talking about. These people believe in a God and it changes the way that they live. So much so that this city has been transformed by this good news, by this gospel of Jesus Christ. It's changed them. And as the gospel continues to spread, as people keep talking about it, it's changing city after changing city. It's turning the world upside down after turning the world upside down after turning the world upside down. It's giving people hope who are in despair. It's doing all of these things, and this is what they're talking about. They turned to God from idols. Now, this might not sound like a big deal to us, but that was revolutionary at that time. See, you could add a God to your plethora of gods, and that was fine. You could say, have your idols, let's add Jesus to it, and you were good in Roman culture. What they're doing is something incredibly different. They are turning from their idols, and they're turning to the living and true God. And that is countercultural. And it has people talking. And the same is true for us. If we, by our actions and our words, look just like the world, and just like our culture, nobody's talking. Nobody cares. But when we start to look different and live different, people are like, wait, there's, there's, there's something that we need to find out about. There's something that people are talking about. And so my question for us as a church, as at as Westcab, is how do we take the truth of this passage and apply it to our lives? What is God calling us to do? How are we to turn to Him and from our idols? And I think the first step in learning how to turn to God from our idols is learning how to discover what our idols are. How do we discover the idols that are in our lives? And some of you might say, really? Really, idols? Like, maybe that was true in Thessalonica, but like, it's modern day, Ryan. Like, we don't, we don't have idols like they had, right? Well, let me show you two pictures. And this is modern day North Korea, this first one. Literally there's statues of their leaders and the people come and they bow down before their leaders. They bow down because these leaders want to be seen as above the people and even a deity. They want to be worshiped. This is not 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. This is today. This is modern day North Korea. Here's another one, Turkmenistan, which is modern, right around Iraq. It's modern day as well. There's an image of a leader riding on a horse coming in to establish his kingdom. People come and they gather together and they pay homage to this leader who is riding in on the horse to establish his kingdom. Let me just pause real quick with this because uh, that's a copyright infringement for any of you that know the Bible. Like, Jesus is going to ride in on his horse. First he rode in on a donkey, right, to bring salvation to us as he stood in our place and died on the cross. But he's coming again, and we'll get to it as we get to unpack verse 10. But this is a picture of what ultimately Jesus will do. What they do is they raise up a leader, a political leader, and they say, hey, look to this leader and pay homage to him. We have idols today. We do. Some of you are like, well, Ryan, once again, that's other places around the world. That's not here in America. We have idols here in America too. Ours are much more subtle. But we absolutely have idols here in America. And see, an idol is much more than a statue. It's much, much more than a statue. There's something bigger that's going on when we talk about idol than just a statue. You see, this is how I define idols. Idols are temporary things that we look to for what only Christ can give us eternally. Let me say that again. Idols are temporary things that we look to for what only Christ can give us eternally. Or another way to say it is this an idol is something that you seek instead of Jesus to justify your existence or to give you meaning in life or to base your identity and security on. This is what an idol is. See, statues ultimately, even at the time that this letter was written, is just showing us what's going on in the heart. It's, it's not ultimately about the statue, it's what's going on in our heart. It's a longing that we have. See, at this time at Thessalonica, They had many, many Greco-Roman deities Many, many idols And you would go to your different idol Based upon what your heart longed for What you felt like you needed What would give you security and give you peace So some people would say, I really want beauty I really want to be physically fit I want to be beautiful You know what, there's a God for that Aphrodite You go and you pay your homage to Aphrodite And she was supposed to bless you with beauty But it was ultimately a heart issue Not a statue issue some of the people wanted to be strong and powerful in and leader, leader positions, they had a God for that. They had an idol for that. It was Aries. So you'd go and you'd pay your homage to Aries, and then Aries was supposed to bless you and give you what your heart longed for, strength and power and authority. Other people are like, I want knowledge. I want wisdom. There's a God for that, Athena. So go and pay your homage and worship and give your money and your time and energy to Athena, and that God will give you wisdom. Some of you might be in here thinking, man, I got no desire for beauty. I don't really care about power or knowledge. I kind of live the Jimmy Buffett period life. Like, that's kind of where I am. At that time, in Greco-Roman world, they had a God for that too. The God of parties. Okay? You could go and you could pay homage to Diocese, and that God would give you good parties and relaxing times and joy. All of those things... That they had at this time, all these idols were really to a deeper heart issue. They were looking to these idols to satisfy what only God could satisfy. They were looking saying, this is what's going to give me acceptance. This is what's going to give me security. This is what's going to make me feel apart." And they could not find it in these idols. So what happens? The gospel comes. And people are like, man, my security, it's really found in God. It's not found in these many gods, these idols. It's found in the living and true God. He's the one that's going to give me acceptance. He's the one that's going to give me peace and joy. And so they literally say, We're leaving all of these behind for this one because this one is so much better. This one's so much greater. That's what's happening in this moment as they turn to God from idols. So, what are our idols? If those are their idols then, what are our idols now? Well, I think money is one of our greatest idols. I think Jesus knew even at this time, money was one of the greatest idols. Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven or hell. And it's not because Jesus wants all your money. It's because Jesus knows that money is temporal, but he has something eternal to offer you. Jesus knows that money can grip our hearts in ways that many other idols can't. And so he speaks to it over and over again. He says, hey, where your treasure is, where your money is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus is like, I want to get to your heart. That's what Jesus is after in this moment. And many of us run to money. And the biggest question is why? Why do we give our thoughts and our energy and our effort? Why do we lay down our families at the altar of money? Why do we lay down our kids' childhood at the altar of money? it's not ultimately because we love how money looks. Like, I have never once met somebody that's like, mm, I love that money, see that little dead man's face on that dollar bill, like, oh, I just love it so much. Like, it's so good, I wanna give my life to see that dead man's face on there. I wanna see Washington, I wanna see Benjamin Franklin, like, that's where my joy, I've never had anybody say that. I've never had anybody say, man, I just love the sound of money, mm, just like, I love to hold it up to my ear and just, just flick it. Just the sound is why I want to give my life to it and give my family to it. Like, no. And some of you are like, I've never even seen dollar bills. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, maybe it's that, that number on your bank account that you look at and you're like, oh, I just, I love numbers so much. Like the number three, Oh, it's just such a good number. I love to see the number three there. Like Nobody worships money like that, right? So why is it that we come to money? Why is it that we look to money and say, I'll give it all for that? Ultimately, because I think we look to money and we're like, man, money's going to give me the security that my heart longs for. I just had more money, then I would feel at peace. And then we get more money, and we're like, I'm afraid of losing it. Afraid of losing it. Or we look at money, we're like, if I get enough money, then I'll be accepted by people. People will want to be my friend because I have a lot of money. Or if I get money, then then I'll be able to have power and, and be in control of certain things. And so... That's what I'm really longing for. You see, there's a deeper heart issue than a dollar bill in front of us. We long for what we hope money would give us. And what God's word is saying to us today is you're not going to find your peace there. You're not going to find your security there. You're not going to find what your heart is longing for there. You see, you'll find something temporal but not the eternal that your heart is shaped for and you long for. This is one of our idols. That's why Jesus spoke so harshly to this. And he says in Luke chapter 12, he says, take care and be on your guard. He says it twice. Beware, beware. Take care and be on your guard. Of what, Jesus? Against all covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus wants us to know that our life does not consist in what we have. How much money we have and how much possessions we have, we will not find life there. We won't. And Jesus said I want you to see that. Now if, if life's not found in money and possessions then where's it found? It's the question you have to answer. It's the question Jesus wants you to answer as you read that passage. Where's true life found? Another one of our idols today is our ideologies. This is one of the kind of newest freshest idols in our culture Where we'll say, you have to agree with all my ideologies, and if you don't agree with all my ideologies, then I'm done with you. I cancel you, you're done. If you don't affirm every single thing, if you don't bow your knee to these ideologies and agree with me, then I cancel you. Bow your knee or what else? That's what's going to happen. This is where we are. And we see this more than ever in our politics. And let me just say, I am thankful for how our country is is created with checks and balances. I'm thankful for the different parties that we have. I am so thankful for America. I'm like a hashtag America person. Like, I'm thankful for it, all right? But at the same time, we need to understand that our ultimate allegiance does not lie to a red elephant or a blue donkey, but the slain lamb. That is where our hope and our rest and our security lies. It is not in these political parties. It's not in a man. It's in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. We have to understand this. See, I'm afraid that too many, even faithful Christians, are starting to ask the question, is this pro- pro- uh, pro- progressive or is this conservative? And we're not asking the question, is it Christian? What does God's Word say about this? That's where our allegiance lies. That's where we plant our flag. That's where we stand. We plant our flag and our life on Him. And so our, our idols are not different ideologies, Our God is the living and true God, Jesus Christ. Another idol that I see in our culture, and honestly, we could go on the whole afternoon and just talk about different idols that we find in our own hearts, my own life, right, and in our culture, but one of the biggest ones I see is relationships, both romantic and familial, like family relationships, both. Like for romantic relationships, so many people are like, gosh, if I can just get married, if I can just find that person, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be filled and I'll be content. But what we're finding is that's not the case. You see, in America, 50% of marriages end with separation or divorce. 50%. What? It's because people are getting into marriages and they're like, wait, this didn't satisfy my, my deepest longings of my heart. Wait, what? I thought, I thought this was supposed to be like everything. We come and we find that we're empty. Because it's not meant, this temporal thing is not meant to ultimately satisfy us eternally. It's just not. And many of us get into marriage and ladies, you, you think that your husband should be like what you see in those romantic comedies, how guys understand women well and they do sweet things, and you think, man, I wish I could marry a guy that that you know thought just like that, that understood me and knew me. Most of those movies are written by women, and uh, so they understand and know you really, really well. And at the same time, I would say, guys, you should work really hard to think more like that, to love your wife well. But what we find is when we get into marriage, that there's a, there's a letdown on both sides of things, that we're a lot more selfish than we ever thought, and the dreams and aspirations we had are a lot more far, far off than we ever dared to dream. And so we come to marriage, and we're not satisfied. We're just, we're not. We're not. So what we do a lot of times is we're like, well, I know the solution. Since marriage didn't satisfy me, we'll have kids. If we have kids, that will ultimately satisfy my heart and my longing. And so we have kids and we try to replace this idol with another idol. And and then you just have a different idol in there. And then we find as our kids graduate and they get older then they move on, then it's like, man, that that idol's gone. Everything I poured into is gone. And so my marriage is shot. That idol didn't work. And my family's gone. So that idol didn't work. And so we sit here empty-handed and we're like, what in the world do we do now? And that's what an idol does to us. It literally takes everything from us. And it leaves us naked and alone. Idols promise the world to us and leaves us empty-handed. Leaves us empty-handed. There's so many idols that do that. They promise us the world and then leave us empty-handed. Now, Hear me say this, too, this is important. Listen, there's nothing wrong with having good gifts. There's nothing wrong with a good gift of marriage. There's nothing wrong with a good gift of family. There's nothing wrong with a good gift of finances or deep beliefs. Maybe you have a great marriage, and maybe you have a great family. Maybe you're successful and wealthy. Thank God for these gifts, but understand at the same time that good gifts make a bad God. Good gifts make a terrible God. And that's what idol worship is. It's when we look to these good gifts as a source of our significance that they can never be. You and I were created to put our hope, our identity, our security in much sterner stuff than this. Much sterner stuff than this. So what God does in his goodness and his mercy is he shakes our idols. He shakes our idols so that we can discover what our idols are and flee from them. And turn from. Him. That's what God does. God is like the story of a lumberjack that went into the woods, and he's about to clear out this forest. But he sees a mother bird come down. And it's building a nest. He doesn't want to hurt the bird. He doesn't want to hurt the eggs that she'll lay. So what he does is the with the butt of his axe, the backside of his axe, he hits the tree and shakes it till the bird gets up and moves to something else. And he sees the bird go to another tree, and so he's like, no, we're going to cut that tree down too. So he goes over there with the back of his axe, and he shakes it and vibrates the tree until the bird's like, no, I don't want to stay here either. And he moves on to another tree. He keeps doing it again, and again, and again, until finally that bird leaves the trees and goes to the rock and makes its nest in the rock that is safe and secure and firm. And that's what God does for us. He looks at our lives, and he looks at our idols, and he comes and he shakes it. And God is doing a whole lot of shaking in our nation right now. He shakes it through crisis. As he shakes it, he's showing you this is not as firm as you think it is. This is not as lasting as you think it is. This is not as secure as you think it is. And God's not doing it to be mean. He's trying to get you to move from these shaky foundations of trees to the rock which would never be moved. That's what God is doing in his goodness and his kindness. He's shaking our idols. And so, look at your life right now. If you're struggling with something and you're like, what is going on? Why is my world being shaken right here? Look and see what God might be showing you in this moment. God might be saying, look, I want you to see an idol, something that you have valued more than me, something that you've given more thought to than me, something that you've poured out your time and your energy and your effort into more than loving and following me. That will not satisfy you. Look to me and I will satisfy you. So, God will shake your idols so that you can discover your idols. But at the same time, look at your life. What shakes you to the core? Because what shakes you to the core ultimately is going to show you what your idol is. I love how Kathy Keller says it. She says, pull up your uncontrollable emotions. That's the things that make you angry or things that make you excited, these uncontrolled emotions. Pull up these uncontrolled emotions by the root, and what you'll find is your idols clinging to the bottom. Listen to that again, pull up your uncontrolled emotions by the roots and what you will find is your idols clinging to the bottom. What makes you the most angry? What, what makes you the most excited? <laughs> when you think about those things and you see those things in your life, you will see what you love and value most. I mean, some of you, if you look at your life right now, the thing that makes you angry is there's a new girl in your group and you're like, man, she's prettier than me and I was the pretty girl in the group, right? Like, I don't like her. She's got to go. Like, she's got to go. She's a pretty girl, and I was a pretty girl. Or, man, so your identity's wrapped up in your beauty. That's your idol. Or, I'm the funny guy. Everybody laughs when I'm in, and this new guy came in, and he started cracking jokes. People started laughing at him instead of me. Like, mm -mm, this dude's got to go. He's evil. And it's because we want to be accepted. That's what's important to us. Or we look at our finances, and when the stock market goes up, we're like, yeah, we're so excited when it goes down. We're like, oh, despair, and like, my life is over The things that that shake your emotions the most are the things you love the most. So look and find what those idols are about what God shakes and what shakes you the most. Discover those idols. Andrew Carnegie, some of you may know him. He was the wealthiest man in the world at the time. Uh, Was the founder of kind of American Steel, kind of the forerunner of that. And at the age of 33, he had so much money He wrote a memorandum to himself, and this is what he said. See, he discovered his idol, and he wrote to himself this note saying, this is my idol. He said, man must have an idol, and the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. To continue much longer, overwhelmed by business cares and most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest amount of time, must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery so I will resign from my business at the age of 35. Andrew Carnegie said, I know my idol and it's my money and it's my business and it's degrading me so much that all my thoughts all my emotions are wrapped up in how I can make the most money in the shortest amount of time and he's worried about that he says if I don't change soon then I'm afraid that I won't be able to change that I'll be permanently broken, so he says, I'm going to resign in two years at the age of 35. Isn't it wild that he says, I know my idol is doing something bad in me, and I need to get rid of it, but he can't. Any of you that know history know that he didn't stop at the age of 35. Kept making more and more money, and he would ruin his workers just in order to save extra money. The average lifespan for someone who worked for Carnegie was 40 to 45 years of age. People died in their 40s, because he would wear them out, because he's like, I got to have one more dollar, I got to have one more dollar, I got to get one more thing, and it left him empty. But even though he could see the idol, he couldn't remove the idol. So it's one thing for us to to look at this passage of scripture and say, yeah, we should turn from idols. How do we do that? How do we dislodge the idols from our hearts? Well praise God, he tells us in this passage, this is how we do it. He tells us in verse 9, we turn to something better. We turn to God. That's what it says in verse 9. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, we don't dislodge idols from our heart by just feeling guilty that they're there. Like, oh, gosh, yeah, I know the idols. I already know what they are. Like, oh, I feel terrible. Oh, I feel terrible. Like, that's going to dislodge the idol. It's not. Or just kind of beating yourself over the back by saying, oh, man, I shouldn't feel this way towards this idol, but it's there, and so I'm just going to continue to beat myself up. That's not how we dislodge idols from our heart. Even if we do, do it that way, what will happen is we'll replace it with another idol. What we have to do is dislodge the idol from our heart by looking to something more beautiful. Something that's better. We have to turn from idols and turn towards God. And this word for turn there is not like, hey, I'm going to take a right-hand turn, so I'm going to get Jesus with some of my idols and we'll keep going forward. No, this is a U-turn. This is the kind of word that we would use to talk about repentance. Repentance. That we look and we see God is more beautiful and better, and we're like, we will follow him, and so we're going to turn away from everything that we're following to come after him. We'll leave our desire ultimately for money behind. We'll, delete, we'll leave our desire for security to be found in family or acceptance to be found in friends. And we'll find it in Jesus and Jesus alone. And I love how it describes in verse 9. You probably want to on this or at least think about this this week. They turn to God from idols to serve what? The living and true God. The living and true God. I love that. I love how it describes God in this moment. He is living and He is true. What He's trying to highlight in this moment as He talks about God being the living God is the difference between their idols and God, the true God. See, our idols are dead and they lead us to be dead. Psalm chapter 115 says this Speaking of idols, their idols, they're silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have no mouths and do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel. They have feet and yet they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. What he's saying right here, what he's trying to get us to see is that our idols, like money, they might have mouths stamped on them and yet they can never speak words of comfort to us. They might have eyes etched on them, and they can see our suffering and pain, but they can never help us. They may have ears, but they can't hear our prayers for relief like the true God can, the living God can. They may have feet, but they're not going to promise to be with you always. They can't do it. And the very next verse in Psalm 115 says, and those that believe and follow these idols become just like them. We become dead as well. It doesn't help us to become more alive. It doesn't make us more full and have abundance of life. It draws us away from God. It draws us away from life. It shrivels up our soul. And this is what God is saying. I'm the living God. Come to me and I will satisfy your soul. Satisfy your heart. You want security? I will give you security in me. You want hope that it goes beyond circumstance? Then look to me. You want acceptance in a world that sometimes acceptance is given and sometimes it's taken away? Come to me, and through Jesus, you will always be accepted. You see, it calls him the living God, but it also calls him the true God. It's true because he can be trusted. He's been proven over and over again. See, our idols will lie to us over and over and over again and tell us, "No, come, come to me, I'll satisfy you, and they don't come to me, and and you'll have security. And we won't. Like, we don't find those things. But when we come to God, we know that He is trustworthy and true, and He can be relied upon. He will always be with us. So all the brokenness that we feel within us or see within the world, Jesus promises that He'll deliver us from it because He is the living and true God. He is better than anything this world has to offer. He's better. And so when we look to God... As better, that's how we replace the idols in our heart. It's a lot like how Romeo replaced Rosalind. Many of you all have seen a movie or read the book of Romeo and Juliet, right? How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? Some of you are like, I don't even know who Rosalind is. That's my point. At the very beginning of the book, Romeo is just awestrucken with Rosalind. Oh, she's so beautiful. My whole world's going to revolve around her. And his friend comes to him and says, hey, Romeo, you need to come with me, because, like, she's not really that into you, she's not going to love you, she's actually going to leave you, she, she, doesn't, she doesn't really care for you like you care for her. And he's like, I don't need to go anywhere, I don't need to go meet other girls, I don't need to go to a party, because there's nothing that's more beautiful than Rosalind. Well, finally, his buddy talks Romeo into going, and he goes to this, this party, and what he sees is Juliet. If you've read the book, it's beautiful, because... His response when he sees Juliet is, oh, (laughs) Rosalind? she's but the moon. Juliet is the sun. There's nothing more beautiful than Juliet. So how in the world did he replace his love for Rosalind? He saw something more beautiful. And he's like, I want that. And that's what God is calling us to do today. To turn from our idols that we're like, man, I can't live without this. Yes, you can. To turn to a living and true God who can deliver you from all the things that your heart is longing for that can't be satisfied in this world and give you something that is worthy of your life. This is what God offers us. This is how God calls us to turn from Him or turn to Him from idols. So you might say, okay, Ryan, that sounds great, but God wants me to turn from idols, but why? Why would I want to turn from idols? Like, my life's pretty good right now. Everything's going well. I just really don't feel... I need to to turn from my idols because haven't let me down yet, like I'm doing pretty well. Well, verse 10 is going to tell us why we should turn from our idols. Look back at verse 10. It says, and wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from what? The wrath to come, the wrath to come. The living and true God is coming again. He's coming again. And when he comes again, there's going to be wrath coming with him. The first time he came, he came offering grace and forgiveness and peace. The second time he comes with correction and justice. So wrath is coming. We see this all throughout Scripture. God's wrath is always aimed at that which is evil. Furthermore, God is coming again to judge that evil. See, God is not indifferent to the evilness in the world or the evilness in us. God cares. It matters to God. God cares how I treat you. God cares how you treat me. God cares how we treat ourselves. He created you. He made you. He cares. He cares about His creation. He loves it. And we look at this world that's broken by our sin and all our injustices. He sees it and it bothers God far more than it bothers us. And He's like, I'm coming again. I'm coming again and I'm going to make things right. I'm going to bring justice to all these places that are broken. I'm going to fix it. This is what God does. And there's part of us that, that that makes us happy. We look at our world and we're like, please, Lord Jesus, like, could you come like maybe today? Because like this place is just broken. But then there's another side of us that's terrified by that. Because we know that, yeah, there's brokenness out there, but man, there's brokenness in here. And there's sin in our lives that we know is not right. We know it. So we read this truth that there's wrath to come, and there's one thing of like, ah. Good. Come, come, Lord Jesus, make things right. There's another side of like, man, but what about the sin in me? What are you going to do about that? Now you might be thinking, well, you're just trying to scare me. I'm not trying to scare you at all. I'm just the messenger. This is God's word. God put it in here. The question we have to ask is why did God put this warning in here? Why did God put this statement that there's a wrath to come? Did he put it in here to like rob joy from you? You kind of steal some, something that you're running after, is that why God put this in here? Why did God put this warning in this passage? I think it's kind of like for me when I was growing up, my family and I we would always go to the beach. One of the things we would love to do is we would rent bikes and we would ride them on the beach. That's what we loved. And one time we we're, we're riding from the little place we were staying, the condo, to the beach and you have to ride up the boardwalk and then out onto the beach in order to, to ride your bike. Well, they have this huge sign, and maybe some of you have seen signs like this before, this huge sign, and it says, walk your bike on the boardwalk. Warning, walk your bike on the boardwalk. Who wants to do that, right? Like, who wants to walk? You get a bike to ride a bike, right? You don't walk a bike. And so one person in my family, who will not, be, their name will not be mentioned, uh, decided, man, I'm not doing that. I'm forgetting that sign. I'm going to ride my bike. And so they rode their bike on the boardwalk, and to truly understand this story, for those of you that hadn't been to the beach, there's something really important you need to know. On the beach, there's this like soft powdery sand, about 15, 20 feet of it before you can get to like, the packed down sand where you can actually ride your bike. And so this person in our family, riding their bike on the boardwalk, going as fast as they can, rides and they come off the boardwalk and they hit that soft powdery sand. And they stopped, uh, or at least the bike stopped, they didn't stop, they went over the handles of the bike onto the beach, and they're hurt. They're like, oh my goodness, all the pain. And so I look at it, I'm like, there's a sign that warned you. There was a sign that said, walk your bike. There's a reason that sign was there. It wasn't to steal your joy of riding the bike on the boardwalk. It was to save you from falling and getting hurt, right? Why did God put this warning in this passage for us? Not to rob us of joy, but to save us from pain, suffering, to save us from the wrath that is to come. This is why this is in this passage, And what I love about this passage, what I love about God's Word as a whole, is yes, it talks about the wrath to come, but it also moves from wrath to rescue. Look at verse 10. It says at the very end, Jesus who delivers us, He rescues us from the wrath to come. This is our hope. God's Word doesn't just say, preach judgment, preach judgment, preach judgment. But preach the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the one who delivers us from these idols that cannot satisfy the one who delivers us from the, the wrath that's to come. The question is, how does he deliver us from the wrath to come? Because he took the wrath for us. He went to the cross and he died. He gave his body for us. The full wrath for our sin and our wrongs came down on Jesus that we could be forgiven. This is the hope of the gospel. And there is no greater illustration than the one we're going to have today to remember this truth that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come when we take the Lord's Supper. And so grab this and think about this truth. This is an illustration. God's word says that this is supposed to be a reminder to all believers that Christ gave his life for us that we could be forgiven. And so we look and we're like, Jesus, what did it cost for you to deliver us from the wrath to come? Your body that was given for us. Your blood that was shed for us. This is the beauty of this. And let me say just a couple things. If you're not a believer, then it's okay not to take this today. Actually, I would tell you not to take this today. God's Word would tell you not to take this. Because what this is, is the person who takes this is proclaiming to everybody That I have looked to Jesus to deliver me from my idols and from the wrath to come. And so I believe that Jesus gave his body and his blood for me that I could be saved. And so if you're not a believer, don't take this. This is not going to make you more righteous. Only Jesus can give you righteousness. Only he can. But God's word looks to us as believers and says, take this and do it in remembrance it says, as you do it, you proclaim what the Lord has done. You proclaim that he's coming again. So we take this today, confessing that Jesus is Lord. But if you're not a believer, I would say as we bow our heads here in a minute, use this time to look to Jesus to deliver you from the wrath to come. He can do it today. He wants to do it today. So look to him. Bow your heads with me. To the non-believer Let me just encourage you Meditate on this truth Meditate on the reality of what you see Before you that Jesus took your place To deliver you from your idols And to give you a true and living God The one who will provide And satisfy you Jesus came to deliver you From your sins And to give you life And God's word says that if you confess in your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so use this time now to pray to him. Confess those idols to him and allow him to forgive you. And to my Christian friends, it's no small thing what Jesus did for you. No small thing, may we never get cold to the fact that Jesus delivers us from our sins. That our hearts never become hardened to the mercies of God. May we never stop being grateful for His sacrifice that He gave for us. It is no small thing that Jesus who knew no sin became sin that we might become His righteousness so if you're a Christian before you take this confess your idols repent of your sins and look to God with a gratitude of heart thanking Him for delivering you from the wrath to come let's take a moment now and let's pray to Him grateful heart of how you have saved us, how you work in our lives to sanctify us, God, how you promised you would never leave us nor forsake us, and Lord, we praise you for the reminder today, how we get to proclaim through our action that you are our Savior and that you are coming again. And So Lord, we thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Jesus, it's in your name we pray.